0: Well, good morning. Let's take time to pray as we prepare to open the Word of God. Father, we thank you for the revelation that you have given us, and now as we open it together, we pray your help, we pray your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Sunday I mentioned uh, near the beginning of the sermon that when I was 13, I started to uh, get interested in jazz music and learn how to play it. Well, from grade seven all the way through grade 12, uh, I was involved in playing in a number of stage bands. And we were uh, typically every year we'd go at least once to a festival somewhere in Western Canada uh, to play the music in a competition that we had prepared during the year. Uh, So we would practice for months leading up to those competitions, and then we'd come to the competition, and oftentimes. I remember just as we were preparing to go on stage to play the music, our music teacher would fire at us a bunch of sort of rapid-fire brief instructions, last-minute reminders. Remember to play lighter during the coda, Uh, saxophone, stand when you have your, your soli section. Uh, trombones, make sure you're playing up to the level of the trumpets in this section of the piece, etc., etc., last-minute rapid-fire instructions. And then after those instructions we were given, uh, we would walk out onto the stage to play the music. Well, essentially what Paul is doing now as his letter to the Philippians winds down is what my music teacher had done. Paul now fires off a variety of short, rapid-fire, almost uh, staccato instructions to the Philippian church. And he starts here in this, in this uh, next section by addressing a relational issue that was happening in the church. And from what we can gather here, this was a significant relational issue. So let's go to Philippians 4.2. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, apparently, there was an issue that existed between these two women. Some sort of uh, disagreement or dispute that the two of them were having. having. Uh, We don't have details on the precise nature of the disagreement. Nor do we have details concerning these two women themselves or what their roles were in the church. But apparently their disagreement, the division that was happening between them, this was significant enough that Paul felt it necessary in his letter to name their names here. It's a pretty significant thing. Now I want us to notice three things about verse 2. First of all, Paul attaches that verb, entreat, to the names of both of the women. We need to see this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. Notice that both women receive the same entreatment, if that's a word. Uh, Paul is not singling out just one of the women. Paul is not taking sides In the dispute, he's entreating, he's urging both women to come together and to agree in the Lord. They both must do the work. Secondly, the goal that Paul gives here for these women is to agree in the Lord. Uh, The Greek here uh, means actually to have the same mindset in the Lord. So this is not simply a call for the two women to uh, sort of put down their differences and become friends again. It's not just that. Paul is after something else here. He's after what Stephen Fowl calls, quote, a common pattern in the two women of thinking, feeling, and acting. A common pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. The same pattern mindset. That's the goal. Paul has already made it clear back at chapter 1 verse 27 that to contend for the faith of the gospel together means that you must be united in spirit with others, with the ones you're working with. These two women were not currently united in the same spirit, and so they must come together, they must work things out And attain the same mindset. Why? Because their witness for the gospel was at stake. And then the third thing to pay attention to here in the verse is that little phrase at the end. That phrase, in the Lord. Very important. These two women were to agree. They were to have the same mindset in the Lord. You see, when two believers have a dispute, it's not Just about the two of them. There is a third party involved, and that's the Lord. Well, what about you, believer in Jesus? Is there another believer with whom you are having a dispute right now, or a disagreement? To be in the same room with that person would just be a real chore for you right now. Well, I want you to remember, again, there's a third person involved, and that's the Lord. You share with your opponent, if I can use that term, you share with your opponent, your believing opponent, you share a union with the Lord. You share that together. And so a good approach to take would be to do the hard work, and it is hard work, to do the hard work of getting with that person that you are having the dispute with, and ask yourselves together, is this rift that exists between the two of us, is this more important than our shared love for the Lord? Or you can ask yourselves this, is my thinking on this disputed issue that we are having, and and is your thinking... On the same disputed issue, is our thinking honoring to the Lord? Or is our thinking uh, far away from him? To use uh, a musical analogy again, uh, actually this one comes from John Kitchen in his commentary. He says, the Lord himself must be the tuning fork in your thinking. Kitchen says, quote, Christ is the tuning fork. And as each mind is set to his thinking, you will together have the same mind. Well, let's go now to verse 3. Paul writes, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, we don't know who the true companion is uh, that Paul addresses here. There have been many suggestions made as to who this person is, um, including the possibility that it was Luke here that Paul is addressing, but we're not entirely sure. But in any case, I want you to notice carefully, Paul enlists this person, doesn't he? He enlists this person to help these two women who are having the dispute. Paul enlists a third party to intervene here. Very important for us to see that. A third party to come alongside these two women to help them get to that place where they will have the same mindset. You know, sometimes when there is a sharp conflict between two people, uh, you need a third party to be brought in to mediate between the two of them. So Paul here calls on another member of the family of God. says so the family of God in action. To help these two women, women uh, to resolve their problem. And here in the verse uh, I think we get a little indication perhaps. That Euodia and Syntyche had some real stature in the Philippian church. Paul says that they both had labored side by side with him. In the gospel. So these women then, they had some visibility uh, in the church, which is perhaps why Paul feels this urgency here to name them as he does in verse 2, to draw attention to their dispute so that they might resolve it, because if left undone, uh, it could easily affect the entire church. Paul also in this verse mentions Clement. Uh, We don't know anything about him, but he also served with Paul in ministry. And then at the end of the verse, Paul says that all of these folks, notice this, all of them, including the two disputing women, all of them had their names written in the book of life. It's a beautiful thing. So even though this interpersonal conflict existed between these two women, their names were still written in the book of life. That hadn't changed. The grace of God overshadowed even the conflict that they were having. Well, when we come to verse 4 now, uh, this is where Paul's rapid-fire instructions are really uh, going to take off now. As we read verse 4, I want you to remember the circumstances in which Paul is writing this letter. Paul, we remember, was in prison, wasn't he? He was chained to a Roman guard. And he was depending here on the kindness of friends uh, to bring food to him because food was not supplied by the prison itself. And at this point Paul also he's unaware as he writes Philippians he's unaware of the outcome of his particular imprisonment his situation would he live or die he was not entirely sure Well in that circumstance Paul says here notice what he says he's writing in that in that circumstance rejoice Wow he says to us rejoice in the Lord Always, again, I will say, rejoice. Well, I think we can conclude here, as we consider those circumstances that Paul was in as he wrote this, that to re- listen, to rejoice always is not the same as feeling happy always. It would be hard to make the argument that Paul felt happy happy there in prison, in those particular dire circumstances. But yet he could rejoice in his circumstances, and he commends rejoicing to the church. Well, if rejoicing isn't the same thing as feeling happy, then what is it? Well, here, I really like Tim Keller's uh, description of what it means to rejoice. I want you to listen to this. Keller says, quote, To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. I'll read that to you one more time. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and its importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Now what was Paul treasuring? What was he valuing and tasting uh, to be sweet in this moment of his imprisonment? What was it? That could make him rejoice and call others to rejoice also. Well, notice that Paul, he doesn't just say rejoice here, does he? He says rejoice in the Lord. That is the sphere or the domain in which Paul was rejoicing and in which we are to rejoice is in the Lord rejoice in the Lord even in the most dire circumstances my friends we ponder the Lord we commune with the Lord we treasure the Lord we focus our attention on the Lord on his greatness on his might we savor even in the most dire circumstances we savor his beauty ...and His kingly majesty... ...and we reflect on His love... ...and on His power... ...and on His holiness... ...until... ...our hearts... ...come to that place... ...where whatever the circumstance is... ...whatever the untoward life situation is... ...that we are in... ...it gets eclipsed... ...by a vision of His perfection... And his glory. Paul could rejoice in the Lord there in prison. It's very possible, and he was doing it. You can rejoice in the Lord even as they wheel you in for another chemotherapy treatment. You can rejoice in the Lord even as you cry tears of grief over losing somebody. You can rejoice in the Lord always, in any circumstance. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And then we have verse 5, where Paul gives another rapid-fire instruction to his beloved uh, Philippians. He says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Now the word translated reasonableness here, this has the sense of gentleness, or uh, of of a forbearance. In Titus 3 verse 2, the word is contrasted with being quarrelsome. It describes the opposite of being quarrelsome. It's about gentleness and forbearance. And notice here that we are to be gentle, reasonable, forbearing to who? Only to those in the church? No. God desires for us to be gentle, forbearing, reasonable to everyone. And that word everyone here, it includes even those who oppose us, those who make life miserable for us. We are to show gentleness to those people also. And how do we carry out such a difficult task? Well, we do it only in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, right? We do it only in his power that he supplies. If you are a person who is prone to being gruff, to being uh, quarrelsome, Pray the Spirit's enablement. Humble yourself under the Spirit. Pray his enablement so that you can become a person who obeys Philippians 4, 5, to be gentle and forbearing with everyone. Paul closes the verse with the phrase, the Lord is at hand. Probably here he means two things. The Lord is at hand. First of all, this phrase means that the Lord is at hand in terms of being available to us or near to us right now to help us obey. Also, probably Paul means here, the very same time that he means that the Lord is here right with us right now to help us, he also means the Lord is at hand in terms of his second coming. The Lord will come soon. His return is pending. So, in light of his return obey him now. With commentators like Peter O'Brien and Gordon Fee and Hawthorne and others, I think Paul means both senses of the phrase here. But let's go to verse 6, another rapid-fire command here as the letter is winding down. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. You know this verse, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, there is so much that we could say here, but our time is short. There were valid reasons why the Philippians might be feeling anxious. They were facing some fracture on the inside of their church, And they were facing opposition from people outside the church. They were facing what Paul has called in this letter, the enemies of the cross of Christ. And they were facing those who were promoting, championing a a return to the law of Moses. So there were issues here that may have been making the Philippians feel anxious. But what's Paul's command to them here? Notice this. What's God's command to you and to me if we are anxious people? Does he want us to go out to chapters today or tomorrow and pick up a few books on self-help that would help us to master our own emotions? Or does Paul say here, well, just go for a run if you're feeling anxious, you'll feel better. No, those things may be helpful, but he doesn't say that here. What he does here, and I want you to listen carefully, what he does here is he gives you and he gives me the manufacturer's instructions for anxious people. My friend, God manufactured you. And now here he gives you The manufacturer's instructions for when you feel anxious. Simply put, uh, to quote Don Carson here, quote, The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. I like that. Again, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. That's a basic summary of the manufacturer's instructions here in Philippians 4-6. Now, I want you to set your eyes again on the verse. So look at those two words here. Anything and everything. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Anything. Think right now about the life circumstance that is making you anxious. And please see That that circumstance, it doesn't matter what it is, whatever it is, that circumstance fits into this catch-all word here, anything. You are not to be anxious about anything, including your unique circumstance that is producing anxiety in your life right now. It doesn't matter what it is. You are not to be anxious about anything, and you are to take everything, which certainly includes your unique anxiety-producing circumstance, everything to prayer. Paul says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. My friend, praying to God is the antidote to anxiety. Praying with thanksgiving, with gratitude to God. That has to be your attitude in prayer. This is the antidote to anxiety. These are the manufacturer's instructions written to you from the one who manufactured you, who created you. When you pray, what are you doing? Well, you are expressing as you pray. You're expressing your dependence on God your trust in God, that he cares for you. To sit prayerless and anxious really is a self-sufficient position where the almighty, the all-knowing, the all-powerful God just gets sidelined. Oh, how I need to hear this verse. I'm telling you right now, Um, I need to live this out in my own life. I'm preaching to myself right now as much as I am preaching to you. Oh, what peace I often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain I bear, all because I fail to take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, notice in verse 7, what can we expect when we obey the command of verse 6 to take our anxieties uh, to God in prayer. What can we expect? Well, the promise of what we can expect in verse 7 is just a, a splendid promise. Paul says listen to what he says, and the peace of God the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds, in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice carefully the connection between verse 6 and verse 7. It's a connection that's explained, I think, really well by John Kitchen when he says this, When we obediently deal with anxiety through a disciplined prayer life, as outlined in verse 6, We can expect the peace of God here in verse 7 as a result. And this peace, says Paul here, this is a peace that surpasses all understanding. How does this peace surpass human understanding? Well, listen, when you're in a bad circumstance in life, when you are in a hard circumstance, when you're in a threatening situation, uh, circumstance, And you are in that moment, as you're in that circumstance, you're experiencing the peace of God, peace from God. It just boggles the mind, right? It's incomprehensible. Why should you be experiencing this tangible peace when your circumstances are so bad? And yet you are experiencing this. It surpasses your understanding. When you've got nothing in the bank account and the bills are due, and yet you have this abiding, tangible peace, well, that just seems impossible. It's incomprehensible. It surpasses human understanding. When you are scheduled tomorrow for a quadruple bypass, it's going to happen tomorrow, and yet you're experiencing great peace. Well, that seems irrational. How is this even possible? And yet the experience of the peace that you're feeling is very real. See, in our world, in and I'm talking now on the purely, um, on the horizontal level, on the human, human-to-human human plane of things, outside of God, in our world, Having inner peace depends on favorable circumstances. To feel at peace, most people, well, they've got to have a good steady income. All of their loved ones have to be uh, in good relationships with one another. They have to be healthy. Uh, The person himself or herself has to be healthy also in order to have peace. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, we know, I hope you know, That our peace is not attached to circumstances. Peace, rather, is attached to God. Peace comes from God. It is not dependent on our circumstances. So whatever our circumstance is, whether good or bad, we can have this peace of God when we take our anxieties to him in prayer with thanksgiving. Paul says here in verse 7 that this peace of God, notice, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, we wonder here if Paul, in this moment, as he writes this verse, is he looking at the guard that he is chained to uh, as he writes this? I think in any case, it's very interesting, as has been pointed out by John Kitchen, It's very interesting that Paul uses a military word here to describe peace. (laughs) A military word to describe peace. This peace of God is on a military mission to guard our troubled hearts and minds. And the peace guards us, notice very carefully, it guards us in Christ Jesus. That is... The peace guards us, to borrow the words of Matthew Harmon, it guards us in the safety and security of Christ himself. Now isn't God sweet? Isn't he wonderful and loving toward us? Well, in verse 8, we have another command in this series of rapid-fire commands Some of us will know this verse very well uh, also. It's another one of those famous verses from Philippians. Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Now, here we're not going to detail the meaning of every individual term in the verse. I think it's better in some ways to just sort of sit under the overall effect that the verse has. And one thing that should jump out at us here is that God clearly wants us to understand that not Everything in the world is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Not everything is. There are things that fit those descriptions, to be sure. And we are told here to set our minds on those things, but there are other things that don't fit these descriptions. As believers, we must exercise discernment, right? We must set our minds on the things that are excellent, that are true, honorable, lovely, etc. Listen, the study of the revelation of God, the study of the Bible, which is, whenever we study the Bible, it's going to include a rich beholding of God the Son, Jesus Christ. That is going to give us a very clear picture of what is virtuous and what is not according to God. The scriptures give us a clear picture of the things in this world that indeed are true and excellent and just and pure and lovely. And you need to know this also our perception as Christians, our perception of what is morally excellent and what is aesthetically uh, honorable, that perception of the believer is going to differ from what a godless culture takes as excellent and lovely. It will differ. See, contrary to a lot of postmodern thinking in the culture, We know as Christians, don't we, we know that there is truth and there is falsehood. We know that there are things that are honorable, and there are things that are dishonorable. There are things that are lovely, and there are things that are ugly. There are commendable things, and there are improper things. There are excellent things, and there are substandard things or faulty things, there are praiseworthy things, and there are shameful things. We must discern as believers in the kingdom with the word of God in front of us as the framework what is true, excellent, praiseworthy, commendable, etc., Our minds, as believers in Jesus Christ, are to be set on, to be focused on, to be filled with the true, the commendable, the lovely, the just, the honorable, the pure, the excellent, and praiseworthy. And in all of it, we remember also, this is important, that what is going on in the mind is going to issue in our speech and in our actions. As Jesus tells us, there is a definite connection between what you set your mind on and the way you speak and act. So again, where do we find the true, the honorable, the just, the pure, the lovely, etc., so that we can set our minds on it? Well, the best place to go, we've already mentioned this, the best place to go, of course, is to Jesus himself. We must take a lengthy, regularly lengthy and thoughtful times to behold the Jesus of the Scriptures. I wonder, my friend, are you doing that every day of your life? Jesus embodies each and every characteristic, each and every virtue that Paul lists here in Matthew, or sorry, lists here in verse 8. I'm getting ahead of myself. I see in my notes Matthew Harmon Uh, So as Matthew Harmon puts it, if our our minds remain fixed on Jesus Christ as the source and the very embodiment of these lovely realities, we can't go wrong. One more time. If our minds remain fixed on Jesus Christ as the source and the very embodiment of the lovely realities in verse 8, we cannot go wrong. Well, our final verse today is verse 9. Another rapid-fire command here. Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, here we can't miss the connection between this verse and the last verse. Paul just got through talking about the true, the commendable, the pure, the lovely, etc. And then immediately here in verse 9, he says, in effect, he says, Practice what you've witnessed in me. I think what Paul is doing here is he's saying, Christ has so worked on me in my life, Christ Christ has so transformed my life, That I can be a model to you of his life, of the attributes that we've just mentioned that we see in Jesus Christ most perfectly. Paul says, Christ's loveliness and Christ's honor and Christ's truth and his purity have come to you through my teaching, through my life, through my example. Use me as a model on which to base your own practice. And do notice, friends, that we've gone from thinking on the perfections that Paul spoke of in verse 8, he wanted us to think on them, now in verse 9, to practicing those perfections. So there has to be this move in us from pondering the perfections of Christ to practicing them, to living them out. Well, we're going to uh, stop here for today. At the start of the sermon this morning, I mentioned uh, my band teacher giving us those uh, rapid-fire instructions just before we went out to play the music. After the instructions had been given to us, there was every expectation that we would go out on stage and play the music. Well, the same thing applies here with our passage. God, through his Apostle, has given us this uh, staccato list, rapid-fire commands, one after the other. Now, he expects us to walk out onto the stage, as it were, and play the music. So this week, I want to challenge you, play the music of verses 2 and 3. Won't you do that? Namely, if you need to reconcile with a brother or sister in Jesus Christ, do that. God expects you to play the music of verses 2 and 3. This week, play the music also of verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord in every circumstance, no matter what your circumstance is. And play the music of verse 5 as well. Be gentle. Be forbearing, even with those people who are opposing you. And live out the command in verse 6 as well, to take your anxieties to God in prayer. And in so doing, experience the peace of God. And also play the music of verses 8 and 9. Set the focus of your mind on the true, on the honorable, on the just, on the pure, on the lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. And then practice those same virtues in your own speaking and doing and acting. And friends, do all of this. Play all of this music in the power that God supplies. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen.